Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Switch Focus podcast. I'm your host Andy Corrigan and with me as always is Jeannie Wu. Hey y'all. And Andrew Brown. Hello. How are you guys? Um, good. Just sort of catching up on all the games that came out after PAX <laughs> and recovering from PAX. So yeah, I've been good but busy. There are too many games! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You don't hear any arguments from me. Yeah, it's making this podcasting luck a bit difficult, isn't it? Just a bit, yeah. Just how much easier our lives would be if this was a Wii U podcast, and we would just <laughs> be like playing the one game a week that comes out, and it's like a cheap $5 game that somebody made on their computer in 10 minutes, and we would just be like begging for more games to come out. Yeah. And, and the hype we'd have to build for the big releases. Switch Focus Podcast, First World Problems. Yeah, having too many good games. So we've got a uh, a packed show for you today. Of course, we had uh, a week off, uh, so we could all get well acquainted with Super Mario, and so Ginny could do her thing at PAX Australia. Mm -hmm. So, let's get right into it. So, updates from last week. Of course, last time I forgot to mention our Wolverblade competition winner. Uh, that was Dimitri, known as uh, Shiatan on, on Twitter. Congratulations. Uh, really hope you're enjoying the game. I certainly did. And we should have an interview with the developer, hopefully in the next episode. We're going to go back to Fire Emblem just briefly. Now, I assume we've all finished it now at this point? Yep, yep I have. I have too. Andrew, I think last time you weren't as far as the rest of us into it at that point, so you, you've probably got some more thoughts on it. Yeah, I, I finished it. I finished it on a hard with the permadeath mode activated. I did not have a problem with it. Uh, it was not until the very last map, when I no longer cared if anybody lived or died, that I even lost anybody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but just, the campaign is very straightforward. It's not challenging it's not really all that engaging from my perspective i kept like waiting for a spear character to be introduced who wasn't on a pegasus there literally isn't one so that kind of <laughs> sucks because uh, i i mostly i mainly use the mounted characters to get around because i was not having success with hitting anything with them so i avoided using them for actual combat whenever possible so basically, I just never used a spear character for combat, and I just used a sword character and ignored the weapon triangle for fighting other sword characters. Uh, that was my main sticking point with it. That, I think, is a microcosm of the biggest problem with Fire Emblem Warriors. There's not enough variety in it. All, all the characters, well, not all of them, but like... I think probably half the characters are sword users, and there's just not many combos, really. Uh, you're limited who you can develop all the way to the top of the tree on their skill trees, so you can't develop anybody past a certain point, which was a big deal in Hyrule Warriors, where if you put a lot of work into it, you could actually develop every character all the way up and unlock all their combos. You can't actually do that in Fire Emblem Warriors. So basically, you're picking three characters... And those are the ones you're developing all the way up. And then, like, there's almost no reason, really, to use anything but the main character. And then when you've when you completed the campaign, the only things that are open to do for you is the 
history mode, which is very limited. I was not impressed at all. And uh, you can also replay the campaign on a higher difficulty level. And it's like, I just did that. I don't want to do it again. So, yeah, other end of Fire Emblem Warriors, it could have been so much more than it is. So I'm pretty disappointed in it. Hmm. Well, I wasn't disappointed, um, but I do realize that my opinion then and my opinion now is still heavily influenced by how much of a Fire Emblem fan I actually am. So while I wasn't disappointed, I identify old I identified all the same shortcomings that Andrew did. Um, but I really would have just preferred for them to be fixed by and I think they would have been fixed by a much better roster. Um, like Andrew mentioned, pretty much half of the, the characters you get initially and throughout the game are sword bearers. And I think that a lot of the more interesting characters um, from those games and even from games like Shadow Dragon and the earlier Fire Emblem games would have offered a lot more variety in playstyle because all the sword combos look very similar. That was one of my main gripes um, with just playing sword characters. And even playing on hard, I think there could have been a lot more down with a weapon triangle. It seemed a bit cursory, like you didn't need it. I think there just wasn't enough done to differentiate the different sword users from one another. And a lot more could have been done thematically because they picked a lot of strong characters for the roster. Lots of strong main characters like Krom and Robin, um, Corin and Xander and Ryoma and all of those sort of really big brash personalities from the 3DS series. And they just kind of felt a bit flat for me. Um, I still loved the game and I loved all the character dialogues between them because I had the background of A, loving those characters and B, loving those characters. So I really lived for the whole character building relationship aspect. I thought the dialogue that it gave me was funny, it was canon, and it all made sense to me. So that sort of softened the blow a bit of the game having a bit of a lack of variety. Um, I finished it now on hard mode with permadeath on. I didn't find it a challenge, but that was as someone who has played Musou games and played pretty much all the Fire Emblem games. Um, I would definitely recommend it if you're a Fire Emblem fan still, like that did not change at all from last week. Um, but in terms of replay value, I think unless the DLC comes soon, it's probably going to quickly lose my interest. Yeah, I should just remind people that I am not a Fire Emblem fan. I haven't played any of the 3DS games, so that was probably a big factor in my not enjoying it because I had no idea mm. who any of these characters are. I have no attachment to any of them. Uh, for me, I think not being a fan of the genre was what actually helped me be more positive about it. Like all I wanted from it was like a you know like a ten to twelve hour hack and slash that I could just power through in a week, and that's what I got. So I was pretty happy with it. Um, and I've got you know limited experience with the Fire Emblem series, and I was I was really happy with the way they they implemented those things. So my opinion hasn't really changed because I got what I wanted from it, really. Yeah, I mean, I I know the uh, the Hyrule Warriors had this really awesome adventure mode, but I I didn't spend any time in that at all. So the history mode being a bit light on content isn't really a loss for me either. So. I know that the adventure mode in Hyrule Warriors, I guess, is actually pretty unique and special in the Musou series. Uh, so I, I guess I've spoiled myself by playing Hyrule Warriors first before I've played any other Musou games, but uh, that's what I'm introduced to. That's what my standard is. That's what I expect from all of them now. So if they don't live up to it, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna criticize them for it. Now, of course, last weekend Ginny was at PAX Australia checking out heaps of games, talking to cool people, 
Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about your experiences there, Jimmy? Um, yeah, that'd be cool. I will omit the stuff that is not Switch relevant because there was a whole lot of it, um, bearing in mind that this is the Switch Focus podcast. Um, but overall, it was a great time. Um, a huge focus on indie games, which we all love here at Switch Focus. And a really interesting uptake, or at least an expected uptake, in terms of indie developers identifying the Switch as a primary platform and one that they want to release on and one that they're really keen to port to. Um, so I spoke to a couple of developers um, from Australia showing off indie games and I saw some publishers from overseas who were showing at PAX and also showing indie games. And the consensus was that a lot of them are actually looking for um, Switch releases day one along with their other consoles. And for them, a lot of them saw the Switch as I guess the future of console gaming, which I thought was really good to hear. Um, which means we're going to be in business here for a long time at Switch Focus. But no, it was actually really nice. Um, a couple of standout Switch games that will be coming next year, I believe, Q t- somewhere between Q1 and Q3, um, Rogue Singularity. So I tried this at the Nintendo booth. Long story short, you're a robot, and you get destroyed by a procedurally generated world over and over again. Um, kind of looks aesthetically a bit like Death Squared, Um, which we did an interview with not too long ago. So please go check that out, listeners. And um, it looks really cool. Um, Another good game on the Switch, which I know that Andrew was looking forward to, Skyrim. Skyrim! It's two weeks away. I'm so excited. (laughs) And me too. I got to have some hands-on time with that. And um, while I wouldn't rank Skyrim as my in my top five RPGs of all time, um, Skyrim on the Switch plays pretty much flawlessly in my opinion um from the 15 minutes that i was allowed to touch it for um everything was sort of felt very snappy very responsive um and everything looked really good um i think even better than i remember it being originally on the pc when it first came out all those years ago so all in all no complaints there i think andrew will be pretty happy with it hopefully i was um so you couldn't create your character it was already pre-created for you so I just sort of run up and hacked at some giants, um, crushed and got crushed, <laughs> ran away, picked some herbs. Um, yeah, but so, can you can you like see the mountains a good distance ways away, or is there? S- yes, yes. Okay, cool. No, yeah, don't worry. It's not like you've got endless amounts of gray space and stuff. Sort of has to get loaded in as you run around. Fantastic. All right. So yeah, um, it was really good. Um, I mainly played those 15 minutes for Andrew because I was not the biggest sort of like, yay, Skyrim and Switch supporter, but I was pleasantly surprised. So I actually might reconsider my stance on not picking it up when it comes to the Switch. It's entirely um, possible all through December, every week of Nicomon said, I didn't play anything new this week because I was playing Skyrim. That's probably going to happen. <laughs> That's fair. I think I'm going to be in that boat as well. So Yeah, I wouldn't blame you guys. Um, and I think another highlight of in terms of original Switch games that I saw and sort of really got excited about was Projection. So this is a Switch game about shadow puppets, um, and it incorporates shadow puppets from different cultures as part of its gameplay mechanic. Um, so it's a, l- a lot of it is based on sort of the absence of light and creating shadows and creating figures and stuff and navigating through a world, which I thought was really interesting. A multicultural team developing it in Australia so it's good to see that the Australian game developers seem to have a lot of funding from people like um, from states like Victoria especially and that they're putting out some really really good indie games always good to support local in the oceanic region 
So overall, PAX was a great time. Plenty of other great games on the Switch that came out that weren't just ones that I mentioned, but those are sort of my highlights. Um, and it's really heartening to see that people are taking the Switch really seriously, and the indies especially are trying to build this really great relationship with the console. So seeing as how we've really enjoyed all the indie releases, or most of them at least, this year, I think we've got a lot more to look forward to. Exciting news all around. Uh, now let's move on to the latest Switch news. First up is that uh, Wii U 4-way GameCube controller adapter is now compatible with the Switch. Uh, initially everyone got very excited that it meant that Smash Brothers was on its mm-hmm. way. However, Reggie at Nintendo America said that they were also surprised that that now works and it was just something of a side effect of the enabling of third-party peripherals. Any thoughts on that? Do we think there's some uh, deflection there? I feel like it would be incomplete without Smash Brothers. It just makes sense to have Smash Brothers. It's been out on pretty much every other bloody Nintendo console since the dawn of Smash Brothers. Um, it's just too valuable in terms of being like a party game and a competitive game for them to not want to put it on the newest console. So I think it was a deflection. I think it definitely is going to come. Smash Brothers is inevitable. It's going to happen. When I said Smash Brothers is coming, what I meant was Smash Brothers Melee is coming because we all, all the hot rumor and all the hot guesses are that GameCube Virtual Console is going to be the big Virtual Console announcement coming up for the Switch. But obviously, if they put out either Smash Brothers 5 or an update of Smash Brothers 4 on the Switch, then it's going to have to use the four-way switch too because it's just the tournament standard now where you play with the gamecube controller it's what you do you can agree with that or disagree with that but if nintendo is serious about smash brothers being taken seriously on the switch they got to have the gamecube controller set up for it so they might be saying it was an accident i'm going to choose to believe on that that if it was an accident what they mean is we didn't mean for it to actually work right away it's something we've been working on and it just kind of happened that it got put into this update we didn't do that on purpose that's how i'm reading it also we've had the news that the switch is now projected to outsell the wii u within its first year of release which is uh, pretty insane and shows what a massive turnaround nintendo have had since the, the wii u's misfortunes yeah i mean i think we all expected it um if we look at all the games that have come out volume wise quality wise and just how lots of big studios have been really investing their time in it third party publishers have been less reluctant to jump onto the switch compared to the third party games that we got initially when the wii u was released in its first year i think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy i think the switch was always going to outsell the wii u um, or at least i felt that way after the first four or five months of the console so it makes sense Um, I'm really happy that's doing so, and I'm glad that Nintendo has turned this around. I have something of a reputation for being an obnoxious defender of the Wii U, uh, mostly because I find a lot of the complaints that people have about it to be really silly, but because it's not about the hardware, it's about the games that are on it, and the Wii U has some fantastic games on it, Uh, and I think a lot of the reaction to it, like, the whole story about it being a failed console is just that it's a story it's a self-fulfilling prophecy people said it's a failed console therefore it becomes a failed console because nobody wanted to support it because it's a failed console so i'm just going to leave it at that because like i said i can be really obnoxious about this topic so moving on 
Uh, as 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 an aside, it's got like the probably the best release to hits ratio ever of any console, I reckon. Yeah, I think so. Now there was a report released about uh, who is buying the Switch and how they're playing it. Now there were some caveats to this report, wasn't there? Yeah, uh, my understanding of the report is it, it's a survey taken of all the people who have the Switch and how they're playing it, and who these people identify as. Uh, as they're playing it's like uh i think it's something like 80 percent or more of the people who are playing it identify as male uh which is uh surprising considering the numbers that we're supposed to be seeing on gaming which is supposed to be about 50 50 uh between the sexes so that was a surprising stat to see on there and also apparently a significant step back from the wii u which had far more women playing it uh, and then also the stats on it were uh, a plurality of people played equally handheld and docked, and uh, but more people choose to play it handheld exclusively than docked exclusively, which I thought I would challenge those numbers because this is all based on self-reporting, so it's based on the people's perception of how they play it. I would say that I play it exclusively docked, but that's because I only play it undocked once a week, at the laundromat so somebody else might say oh i play it both ways i don't look at it that way i look at it as i play the thing exclusively docked unless i am out of the the town for the weekend which has happened once or when i'm at the laundromat that's the only time i play it handheld the, the thing that got me was all the sites reporting that hey most people play the switch handheld but that's that wasn't the stat the stat was that most people play both <laughs> And it's just like the number of, of sites that were reporting handheld was the most popular, and it's just no, it's not. That's not how. That's not what those numbers mean. I think that's people setting themselves up to describe it as a handheld because people, uh, pundits, if you want to use that word for commentators on the video game industry, they, I've been trying to deal with how to describe the Switch. Is it a console? Is it a handheld? I think this is them trying to kind of force it into a corner on that which I think is a bad idea. Just It's the Switch. Let it be the Switch. Apparently EA are wanting to give the Switch 12 months to gauge its demand, um, which is a bit of a change after they were saying they were going to see how well FIFA did after they put out an inferior version and kept telling everyone that it was an inferior version. Uh, any thoughts on this one? Um, I think it's ridiculous, um, honestly. I think all the statistics on how well the Switch sells and even just sort of, I guess, the presence of the Switch at large events like PAX and interest from developers it just seems to be growing and growing. I think there is absolutely no way that you can look at the console and think that there's no demand for it um, or that there's insufficient demand to actually put a fully funded um, new game or even an old port of some IP on the Switch. I'm not sure why EA is hesitating. Um, everyone else has honestly jumped in head first, um, even Square Enix, who used to be recalcitrant on this part. And honestly, I don't know why they're doing this. It seems like a, a nonsense commercial move to not want to put a game, a good game, on the Switch. It, it reeks to me like they're, they're just a bit out of touch. So, of course, FIFA is their biggest biggest selling game. That's, undis- that's undisputable. So I can get the thinking of putting that on it. But when you're telling people that it's noticeably different and in some ways the way they're describing it, it came across as inferior, then that's probably not the game to test the market on. They've got games like Unravel. Uh, I know they've said that Fee or Fe is coming out. 
uh, fairly soon. So, like th- those games would be much better and would would sell by the bucket load on the Switch. So, it just seemed a bit of a weird one. As popular as football is around the world, it's you know there are pe- a lot more people who aren't mm. fans of it that you could be tapping into. I was annoyed at first by this statement because uh, it kind of echoes kind of what Capcom's been going through with the Switch support, but I got to thinking, when was the last time I bought an EA-published game? I honestly think it was Mass Effect 3, so it's been that long since I've even bought one of their games. Like, I could care less if they release any Switch games. So I saw somebody on Twitter had joked that uh, what they're really saying is they're waiting to see uh, what the demand for loot boxes on the Switch is because there's no games. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we got that MOBA coming out soon. So I guess we'll see how that does with the microtransactions. But that might actually, that was some shade being thrown there. But that might actually be a fair assessment of what they're doing is they're waiting to see how microtransactions perform on the Switch before they invest fully in there, because you could feel one way or the other about this. I'm not going to judge you for it, but I think for EA especially, microtransactions are where the futures are for some of these big publishers. And that's why they'll continue to lose my money. Anyway, moving on. There has been a release date announced for Rocket League, finally, coming on... November 14th, along with pretty much every other game in that two-week window. Uh, I've previously said I'm not big on multiplayer games, but I did really enjoy this on the PS4, so I am going to double dip. Um, I've played it. I'm happy to keep playing it on the PC. (laughs) I have it on PS4 through uh, Instant Games Collection. I played one game, and I was already bored with it before the game was over, so uh, I'm going to pass on this one. I think I tapped out when uh, everyone started taking it way too seriously as a competitive <laughs> game, and I was just like, guys, it's football with cars. <laughs> like, just think about it. You're being ridiculous. Well, it combined two things I'm terrible at, controlling a car and controlling a ball, so I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> also gaining a release date is Stick It to the Man. Uh, I played this on Vita many years ago. It's a very goofy half point and click half platforming thing. It was it was very fun. I enjoyed it. Pretty funny. Either of you two played this one? No, I haven't. Sorry. Doesn't sound familiar, but I'll probably check it out on the Switch. And basically, the premise is this uh, guy has an accident where a a stretchy arm attaches itself to his brain, and then you use that to solve puzzles by like slapping things or peeling stickers and all this sort of stuff. It's, Damn. it's pretty cool. My friend, what you've just described is Octodad, okay? That's also coming out soon. Yeah, we got a release date for that, didn't we? It's out Friday, I think? Thursday? Oh, God. (laughs) (sighs) The ride never ends. (laughs) And uh, there has been a demo put on the eShop for the Heroes of Monkey Tavern. Have either of you two played this demo? I did not get around to it, no. So I have no opinion on this thus far. I was unaware there was a demo available for it. I played it yesterday. Um, So it's a classic-styled grid-based dungeon crawler where you take charge of four heroes and explore a dungeon and uncover the map as you go. I am not very impressed with it, sadly. It all feels a bit cheap, like everything feels a bit placeholdery from like everything from the font to the art 
the writing is pretty bad. Um, it starts with four heroes spending their money in a tavern where they're approached by a, a random man offering adventure. The voice acting here is, is terrible too. Uh, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt because it doesn't seem like they're uh, an English-speaking first developer. But it, And it's obviously a low-budget game, but that sort of stuff did great on me really quickly. Yeah, I mean, the in- in-game graphics are fine and it, it technically played okay. The UI is pretty bad as well, so it doesn't make anything clear and took 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 me a little while to get into the swing of it. I think generic sums it up mm. pretty well. Doesn't match up to the likes of Legend of Grimrock, which I played on PC. I didn't finish it, but I, re- I enjoyed what I played of that. Uh, or even some of the Japanese developed equivalents on 3DS, like Persona Q or Etrian Odyssey. So, yeah, I'm probably going to give that one a miss, I think. Fair enough. I haven't had good experiences with first-person dungeon crawlers so that doesn't that all sounds pretty typical to me but maybe i just haven't played the good ones uh but i wondered about that with the price point it was at and the kind of game it was trying to convey itself as like quest of dungeons i think is like 10 15 and i look at that game and i understand why it's 15 uh it's a great game but it's not a game that looks like it's trying to be more than what it is. I looked at Legend of the Monkey Heroes of Monkey Tavern, and I'm like, you're doing this game, and it's all first person, and there's going to be an endless number of dungeon crawls I can go on, and I'm using 3D modeled graphics and all this epic adventure, and it's only $10? That is suspicious to me. So none of this surprises me. Okay, so let's move on to the new releases. Now, obviously, we've had the week off, so there's a a high number in this list again. Uh, So we'll run through them, and we'll talk about what we've played or what we're interested in. Uh, So starting off, we had Just Dance 2018. This is The Police. Splasher. Time Recoil. Knights of Azure 2, Bride of the Moon. Violet. More Neo Geo games with The Art of Fighting 3, Chess Ultra, Sparkle 2 Evo, Super Beat Sports, King Oddball, Monster Jam Crush It, Monopoly for Switch, uh, Warning to Avoid apparently has massive problems, takes 6 minutes to boot to the main menu and like 13 minutes for a match to actually start, so there's your warning there. There is a workaround on that. If you actually power cycle your Switch before starting it up, but after downloading it, it's supposed to bypass all those problems. Which I remember reading oh. about another game earlier in the year. I've forgotten what it was. Also had this problem. So uh, Cartoon Network Battle Crushers. Perception. So Perception looks really interesting to me. I personally haven't actually played it yet, but I think the premise is that you play as someone who is blind and you therefore have to navigate... Um, the world of this adventure game using your sense of sound. Um, it sounds interesting, but I'm not quite sure about the whole playing as someone who's meant to be blind, yet yeah. using echolation to navigate like like, like a bat. Um, I think um, I will keep my interest in it for now, um, and I will be skeptical about presentation and all that until I actually play it, but I think I will pick it up just because... I just haven't seen something like it before. Yeah, it looks like an interesting concept for a game, but the whole idea of representing echolocation visually and then telling the player you're playing as a blind person when the entire game 
the entire conceit of the game is related to you through a visual perception, it undermines itself there. So I'm not a blind person. I can't relate to that experience at all. But I'm thinking the entire premise of the game is nonsense. Also, is more fights. Uh, Tuhu Kaboto 5 Burst Battle. You spent time this one, haven't you, Ginny? Um, yes, I have. Um, so I am a Toho Project virgin. Um, never really played many of the Toho Kabuto games. Um, sorry, the Toho Project games. I tried, I think, Genso Wanderer a while ago, which is their dungeon-crawling roguelike game, which was obviously vastly different from this, but they're meant to be really known for being really, really difficult arcade-style bullet hell games. Um, Toho Kabuto 5 Burst Battle is not that. Um, so if you are a Toho Project fan and you're looking for some crazy hard arcade sort of, you know, mental colors everywhere and all that stuff to play with, Toho Kabuto Burst Battle is not that. Um, you play as one of nine different characters and they all look like children as well, um, just to put it out there. And essentially it's kind of like the premise of Pokken where you beat up on another child. Um, repeatedly um, in like a in like I guess a dueling match whereby you can use ranged attacks um, uh, up close melee attacks and dash and defense so the controls felt a bit airy um, jumping around was often a nightmare um, guarding and blocking was quite difficult um, and not because I didn't know which button to press but sometimes I felt like I press guard and it would never actually guard me um, Everything just seems a bit too slow. Um, I think for a game that has, you know, bullet hell games as its selling point, you kind of want a game that builds momentum. Burst Battle is not that game. Fights can be quite long and drawn out. Um, They're mainly about dodging the enemy's bullets and hitting the enemy with your own or just straight up jumping in front of them and hitting them with your hands multiple times (laughs) or your sword or whatever weapon that you've got equipped. Um, I might be being a bit harsh in it or I might not see the appeal because I'm not a Toho Project fan. Um, but I think even as someone who is a fan, I mean, sorry, even as someone who might be a fan, I think you might be a bit put off by this one just because of how clunky it feels. So it doesn't sort of have that sort of tight, wound up, um, sort of action packed feel that you think a bullet hell game should have. And if you're playing Toho Project for the bullet hell aspect, I think you can safely give this one a miss. They could have ported pretty much any other Toho game, I think from the PlayStation to the Switch and would have been received better or at least would have played better. But this just feels like a PS2 game, in my opinion. So, sorry, but it's going to be a miss from me. Ouch. Uh, Also, we have Wheels of Aurelia. Now, I had to look at this one. It looks really interesting, but I believe you've been playing it, Andrew. Yeah, interesting is the word for it. It's it's quite a concept game. Uh, It's... A narrative game, also a driving game. It's set entirely in three-quarter perspective as you drive this car through 1978 Italian countryside. And the two characters who are in the car uh, have little conversations about what's going on in the world at the time and how their lives are being affected by that. There are these two young women. They're both at the very end, at the tail end of second wave of feminism and all the things that are coming across Europe that uh, affect their lives. And you can pick up hitchhikers and find out a little bit more. And it each game takes about 15 to 20 minutes to get through. Uh, 
and there's like 16 endings total that you can find like my very first game uh i picked up a couple hitchhikers and dropped them off in this town then i got drawn into a street race and i won that race and i got that guy's car but it turns out that the guy i was racing was actually uh, a black shirt fascist so then we got into race chasing him down to stop him from blowing up this town <laughs> and then we stopped him and that was the ending and that was one game of wheels of aurelia how it can all play out it's it's not a challenging game. I don't think you can even lose. Uh, I read one review of it that was just absolutely withering, and then I read another one that was really positive for it. I think if it sounds like something you're going to be interested in, you'll probably enjoy it. But if it sounds like something you'll hate, you should follow that instinct, because this one, I can tell, is going to be divisive. That sounds pretty cool. I might take a look. I decided to take a break from hunting moons in Super Mario Odyssey to play a game called Moon Hunters, ironically. <laughs> uh, so uh, this is a super short RPG that sort of builds itself as a personality test. I picked it up because it was short, so I knew I could get it in quickly. Now, so in this you're constantly like meeting people, doing things, making choices, and these choices will affect the endings you can get. Um, it only takes an hour to 90 minutes to, to beat a, a run, or to at least go through it. And it's definitely set up for multiple playthroughs, so you can experiment with different classes, different uh, regions, go through all their stories, that sort of thing. Um, and it tells you that when you start, it says that you'll relive the same five fateful days again and again. And regardless of how you do, even if you die in the final battle, you'll still get a complete ending and an assessment of your character and their choices, which is kind of cool has absolutely beautiful presentation uh, in all areas so when when you you're doing dialogue you get the these beautiful watercolor character drawings the gameplay is done in like pixel art which you know it's full of color full of life it looks really gorgeous um, and this it's got a fantastic soundtrack like easily one of my favorite switch soundtracks so far but it's uh it feels a bit shallow in some respects. So the gameplay changes uh, basically depending on what class you pick. So like my first one was a Spellblade, uh, and that basically played like a hack and slash. So the combat's pretty smooth, it's it's satisfying, but it, there's a weird thing where there's good feedback for hitting enemies but not when you're being hit, which is a bit weird. And I found the structure a bit confusing at that point because I kept stum stumbling upon area exits and missing most of the leveling mechanics by accident. Uh, but my second playthrough was a lot more enjoyable. I played as a ritualist, which uh, she had ranged attacks and this like gravity orb which sucks enemies in, so it meant I could lure traps and then bombard enemies from a distance, which is really cool. And my third playthrough was with a witch who has like a blade attack and can shoot a ray of blood at enemies. Uh, so everyone plays differently, it's always a different experience. Structurally, you get to pick which area you go to next. Sometimes it's a village where all you'll do is chat to locals and advise them. Uh, sometimes it's just like a barren wasteland where you'll go through and you'll get attacked by the wildlife or other enemies uh, and find mini-bosses. But everything you do has an effect on your levelling. While you're beating monsters, you get the currency, which, are, which you can then spend to boost your abilities. Um, and the whole aim is to try and build your character enough within these five in-game days to beat the final boss. Even after my third playthrough of it, I honestly don't know what I make of it still. It's it's compelling more than enjoyable. 
if I was to compare it to anything, I would compare it to Kamiko, which is another Switch game and another shortish RPG. Uh, it's similar in both combat and structure, but I feel like Kamiko, even though it's less impressive in its ambitions, delivers on its promise better than Moon Hunters does with its. But what's interesting here, it's got four-player co-op, local only, but I haven't been able to give that a try as yet. But yeah, it's it's interesting. It's it's not amazing, but it looks gorgeous, plays okay, and it's fun for a short time. Also, it was Poi Explorer Edition. It's another one Andrew's been playing. Yeah, I spent a night playing it, interrupting my Mario Odyssey Odyssey, um, uh, which <laughs> appropriate that it came out at the time that it did, because it's actually very similar to Mario. Uh you play as these two young children who meet up with this old guy and they want to be explorers and this guy's like I used to be an explorer let me show you how you do it and then you go around the worlds collecting all these explorers medallions and then the more medallions you get the more worlds you can visit this sounds familiar that's because it's a 3D platformer <laughs> uh it it's pretty indie um it's a very recent game but it looks like a Nintendo 64 game maybe a Maybe a GameCube game. Maybe that's unfair, but uh, uh, I only played it the one night, but it seemed pretty good. It handled pretty well, uh, which is always important in a 3D platformer, uh, and there were a lot of things to find in every level. Uh, it's all laid out very linearly, where it gives you a list of the Explorer's medallions you can find in each level. You pick one, you go into the level to find it. If you find another one along the way, hey, that's great. You know, Super Mario 64 worked exactly the same way. But then as you get deeper in, you'll meet other NPCs who will tell you about other things you can find. And if you actually go back into the levels, you'll find out there's actually a lot more hidden in there than it first appears. So it's basically Super Mario 64 meets Skies of Arcadia. It's uh, it's not a bad game. I would check it out if you're into 3D platformers. Next up, we have Night Terrors. Now, this is an interesting Endless Runner cross flappy bird clone a comparison the devs don't shy away from in the product description so you basically run jump hit enemies and fly through a series of spikes by tapping the jump button uh, the twist here is that you can only get hurt three times or let three enemies get past you in what they class as a quote-unquote level and um, by hitting milestones you'll unlock new power-ups to collect during a run that'll help you get further i think the first one was a throwing axe which certainly helped me get a little bit further anyway. Mm. I, I kind of like it. It's, it's super cheap. It's like It must be a couple of dollars US, but it was under five bucks here in, in AU. It's three dollars US. It's super cheap. Um, and it seems quite a bit of game for that three dollars. Yeah, I mean, it's an endless runner, so it's all procedurally generated. Uh, once you start it, you just go till you stop. So you're going to get as much out of it as you feel like getting. Uh, there's a high score chart. So if you want to get better at the game, it'll keep track of your best runs. Uh, probably the biggest problem with the game is there's actually no online leaderboards, so you can only really play against yourself unless you want to go through the trouble of uploading your scores onto an online database. I, I have no interest in doing that, but maybe you do. Uh, but there's a good number of modes in it. Uh, like, I think... I don't really care for the Flappy Bird comparison because it makes it sound like you spend more time flying than you do. There's only one level, one game mode that's really only a Flappy Bird ripoff. The rest of the time, it's it's more like Cannibal. It's an, it's an actual endless runner where you're running on the ground, and you, you only fly when you have to. Uh, but I just I got it because I was like, I don't really have any game to play at Halloween this year. 
Halloween has since long passed by the time this episode comes out, but that's what I picked it up for, and I was actually kind of surprised, like, hey, I actually like this game, and it's a gothic horror game, so that was nice. Yeah, in terms of the visuals, like, most indies tend to go for that NES or SNES oh. era look, but this this is, like, real, like, Commodore 64 Spectrum looking game. Oh. It's, it's, it looks really neat. I, I would have compared it to Ghosts and Goblins, which is an NES game, but... <laughs> I think it's the uh, the the blocks of colors and the way the they gradient the colors. Mm. Okay. But yeah, as a, as a low risk game just to play in short blasts, yeah, I'm completely happy I bought it. Yeah, uh, it took me about three hours to unlock everything, and honestly, just because of the way I play games, I'm probably not going to play it again. But I'm totally satisfied with what I got out of it. So, I recommend it if you're into this kind of thing. Cool. Another short game that came out for. A very small amount of money was Zombie Gold Rush. I picked this up. It's it, over here. It was six dollar dues. I think it's a mobile game, um, but a bit like Night Terrors, it's another score attack game. Uh, basically, a most base level, it's a bit of a riff on Space Invaders, where you play as an armored anti-zombie vehicle who sits at the bottom of the screen, and then you shoot waves of zombies as they pop up around you. Uh, they mostly just sort of shamble towards you as you'd expect. Once you clear a screen, your card drives up to the next one. You can pick a power up in between, whether it's increased speed or damage or a secondary weapon, um, uh, or rest- or even restore your health. And then you get to do it again, and you keep doing this until you get to like a big treasure chest. And then you f- it follows it up with an escape portion where zombies are driving cars after you to try and stop you from getting away with their gold. And um, there's only one level, but it's done in across five difficulties, which you unlock by earning certain amounts of gold on on the level you're on um, and there's types of zombies you get and the structure of the waves sort of change, changes from difficulty to difficulty the main sense of progression is you earning the money to buy new vehicles and, and weapons it's silly, it's fun, it's throwaway it's a little clunky in terms of moving the reticule around the screen yeah. uh, but that might just be more that might just be more me than anything it's not something I'm going to sit and play th- through for hours like with uh, Night Terrors but it's perfect for filling little 10-minute slots here and there, so uh, I'm not that disappointed with it. And lastly, before we get on to the the really big one, was The Mummy Demastered. I've spent some time with it, not as much as I would have liked to have, but I think it's going to be the next game I beat while I wait for next week's games to get launched, but it's the licensed game of the Tom Cruise Mummy movie that just came out, and I don't let that scare you away, either because of Tom Cruise or because that movie was terrible. Uh, it's by way forward. Uh, I haven't seen Tom Cruise yet in the game. I'm going to assume he's not in it at all. And the only way I would really know that this was based on the movie is that every so often a pixelated head of Russell Crowe comes up and gives you orders. Uh, but, like, really, this game has, at least what I've played of it so far, absolutely nothing to do with the movie. So uh, it's the best sort of licensed game in that regard because there's nothing the movie there can mess it up on. Uh, It's basically Metroid with a machine gun. Uh, It's got the Metroid, especially the the Super Metroid era level design, but all the combat you're playing is more like you're playing a character from uh, I guess Contra, I think, would be the best thing to use to describe that. But the platforming, actually, I would say is most like 
uh, classic era Castlevania because there are a number of platforming sequences where I was trying to get across long cliffs and something flew in from off screen and knocked me out of the air mid-jump just like a freaking bat or a Medusa head, those cheap little jerks. Um, <laughs> but unlike those classic Castlevania games, you don't immediately fall to your death. Instead, you just fall to the bottom of the area. You've got to climb back up. Honestly, I wasn't that thrilled about the times that I had to do that, but it hasn't made me hate the game yet. Uh, and it's got an interesting uh, respawn mechanic. Uh, I think it's actually borrowed from Alien Infestation, which is another licensed game that WayForward made, uh, where if the Marine that you're controlling dies, he actually becomes a zombie and runs around with all your equipment. So when you respawn you don't actually just pick up your character where you last saved at. You actually get a fresh marine, and you have to track down your zombie and kill him. And I read one guy, Brock Wilbur online, poor guy, got killed by his zombie so many times that when he tried, whenever he goes back into the room where the zombie is at, there's this whole army of dead former marines waiting there to kill him, and he's completely <laughs> stuck. <laughs> this is what WayForward does. They make really solid games that do not take risks. This is a really solid takeoff of Metroid. If you like Metroid, you're probably going to like this. You should probably check it out. I really want to because I've heard really good things about Alien Infestation in particular. Uh, that seems like the most relevant comparison, but I just never got around to that. Its price point is the only sticking point for me. It's just outside of that impulse purchase range. However, I did get 30 bucks credit for my birthday, so maybe I'll have my arm done. Maybe once the current rush has subsided. Subside, please. Okay, and of course, a little game called Super Mario Odyssey was also released. So let's talk about that. So, Super Mario Odyssey then. Um, I just want to say that I avoided nearly all previews and reviews of this game, and I think that my experience has been a lot more richer because of it. So, I think where possible I want us to try and avoid spoilers in this in this discussion, as weird as that sounds for a Mario game, because I think you, it is possible for this game to be spoiled for people. Um, I spent the whole week leading up to picking up our household's copies, absolutely childlike hyped for it. I, I couldn't even start it the Friday night at release though, because I still had six to seven Fire Emblem Warriors levels I wanted to knock out first, uh, so that was even more agonising for me. Uh, I finally got it started on, on the Saturday, uh, and my excitement for it was instantly hampered by the screen that said, hey, please play with the Joy-Cons. <laughs> and I realised in the early couple of hours that a lot of Mario's nifty new abilities weren't actually available without Joy-Con motion control, and that almost killed my hype for it entirely. Um, I It just didn't mentally fit with my views on the Switch's strengths as a console. I wanted to play more with the Pro Pad, which it turns out hasn't been a problem. It's one of the best controllers ever made, because I want to play games using it. Um, but I just couldn't help but think forced motion controls in 2017. Really? However, those concerns absolutely dissipated in light of how fantastic the game is. I've played now with a good mix of Joy-Cons, Pro Pad, and in handheld mode, and at no point has my enjoyment been hampered by needing to use motion controls or lacking these abilities when not having them available to me. Uh, which is great, I just wish it did a better job of making it clear that they're not essential because it just sort of 
just brought a shadow over what I was about to experience. What about you guys? Does that that resonate with you? That story or? I was just sort of hype for its release, and the hype continued. I just never got off the hype train. Um, I remember loading up the game, and the music playing, and just the hype just kept building and building and building.、Um, I think I came into it incredibly nostalgic for Super Mario Sunshine and Galaxy and stuff like that, and I've always been a very biased pro Mario game person. So I think I knew I was always going to love it,、um, but even then, it managed to surpass my expectations.、Um, so I mean, I thought it was great.、Um, I've written a long review about it, which lets everyone else know that I thought it was great.、Um, we'll, we'll add a link to that in the show notes, by the way. So. For for listeners, so they can check that out. In terms of the motion control part, though, which is I think what you were talking about, Andy, I never really felt like they were um, mandatory. Um, then again, it might have just been me being too excited. I just sort of like glossed over all the introductory sort of tutorial videos and little bits. I just you know just kept sort of pressing A, like you know I just want to play the game.、Um, so that might have been why I didn't feel like it was compulsory. I played most of mine in handheld mode. I did go into Joy-Con mode after I actually clocked the game, just to、so、get all the moons that I'd missed and stuff like that. But I never felt hindered in any way by the fact that they had these motion controls. I think they were a nice touch, but I had a great time playing in handheld for eighty percent of the entire game, basically, or eighty percent of my entire experience, and it was good. No, it exceeded my expectations in pretty much every way, and I am gonna keep playing it. <laughs> Uh, I、uh, live on Twitter, basically,、uh, so I had some warning about the motion controls because there was some discussion about it by、uh, journalists who had played it in the days before its release. So I was aware that it pushed you to use motion controls, but you weren't required to do it, except for on a handful of moons, I guess, that、uh, you can't reach it without using the motion controls. I haven't encountered any of those moons yet, where I felt like I haven't had to use motion controls to use it. But I don't really have a problem with motion controls, so I've been perfectly happy to play with the Joy-Con detached. It's actually the first game I have played on the Switch with the detached Joy Cons.、Uh, I've, I've been playing with the Pro Controller for everything else this whole time,、uh, so it was nice to actually use that feature of the Switch、uh, for real. So rather than just knowing it exists, and you know, it's something there that I can talk about, but I never actually do it. Yeah, I do want to note that using the Joy-Con controls is extremely satisfying.、Um, for me, anyway, it felt very organic, and it just made sense. Like when you sort of snap your hand in particular motions to sort of throw the cap, everything just felt like you actually, you know, gonna throw a cap、um, in real life, like throwing a frisbee, for example. And I felt like the Joy-Con controls. While I didn't want to use them most of the time because I just prefer handheld mode, I just love that GBA feel when I play my games.、Um, they were very organic, they were well integrated, and they were very fluid. So definitely, if you're into that, I would play with Joy Cons. Yeah, once I got into it, and I was using them, it was fine. I mean, I still didn't use the flick to throw the cap. I still use the、uh, the Y button,、uh, but for some of the other things like doing the、uh, Hat spin to take out multiple enemies swarming you. That was that was a, a go-to for that. So yeah, once I got into it, I was fine. And and the game is just such a delight that I didn't really care after that that first couple of hours. So、um, now, of course, 
the game hinges on its collection of power moons. So, how many have you got so far? Ginny, you finished it completely, right? Um, no, I haven't clocked the game completely. I clocked the storyline completely. I'm sitting around 343 moons at the moment. So not that many at all, really, in terms of completionism. Um, I think, Andrew, you're close to 500. Is that correct? Yeah, I have almost 450. I... This actually goes into one of the things that just kind of bugs me about the game. It's, it's a nitpick. So it's not really something you should take as serious criticism as a reason the game is bad or good. But uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't tally your power moons until you actually take them back to the Odyssey. So... When I played the Final Kingdom, I got every moon that you can get in there, which is like 25 moons or so. Uh, but then I beat the game, and so I didn't go back to the Odyssey, so it didn't actually tally those moons that I did get. So I think my tally says 445 or something, but I'm actually closer to like 470 total. And it, that that just irritates me that I have to go back to the Odyssey, especially since... Often you will get a moon for another kingdom in a different kingdom, which the reasons that those happen, I'm not even going to bother explaining. You should just play the game. But like, if you want that moon to count towards your tally, you then have to leave the kingdom you're in, go back to the kingdom for that moon, and let it tally up there just for one moon, which is a lot of loading and fast traveling to make that happen. Just, I'm not a fan of that. I would not be surprised if they patched that out soon, but... I'm at 450 moons. I tried to do everything that I could in a kingdom as soon as I got to it, uh, which I did persist at all the way to the end. And then I hit the end credits, and I'm just like, I'm in no rush to go back into the game, and I, I couldn't really tell you why. Uh, I'm currently on probably just over 200 moons, I think. I've just hit New Donk City, but I am really enjoying the process of finding and collecting the power moons. So usually I hate collecting things in video games, it's like absolutely one of my pet hates. Uh, even in the likes of Super Mario 3D World, which is a game I really loved, I'd always do just enough to get me through to the next level, and I'd only go back to the earlier levels if I needed more to get me through. Uh, here, collecting the moons, I'm finding it just so much fun to the point where just using the Sand Kingdom as... My example, I could have progressed through the story a lot quicker, but I just couldn't bring myself to leave until I'd found everything I could find myself. Like, I'm not actively striving to 100% the game, because I just never do that in with any game. I'd rather f finish it and move on to the next thing. But, yeah, just finding a moon means that you're experiencing something really inventive, or in most cases rewarding, whether I'm solving a puzzle or doing a tricky platforming section, I just feel like I'm constantly being rewarded for, for being on the hunt for them. I mean, obviously there's a couple of easy ones where, you know, stamp on a hill or climb a tree and there it is, but yeah, just on the whole, I'm, I'm just enjoying that collection process and that's that's really rare for me in, in any video game. Um, I'm someone that loves collecting things, um, so I did actively seek them out for the majority of the first couple of levels or the first couple of kingdoms. Um, but funnily enough, um, I spent most of my time, I think, just exploring the world. Um, for me, obviously, I collected more than enough of the power moons to actually finish a kingdom. But I just liked trying to find basically every sort of hidden nook and cranny, um, all the hidden levels and hidden pipes you can unlock in the game. Um, for me, that was the most rewarding. Just the number of ways I could sort of navigate a particular tower 
or a platform puzzle and how I guess the Joy-Con and also just knowing the game mechanics opens up new navigational avenues for you once you've done a kingdom once. So part of me really enjoyed going back to areas that I'd seen already after I had a bit of a better grasp of the game and just exploring them one more time and seeing how much stuff I'd missed the first time I went through it. Because especially in the Cascade Kingdom, um, which is magical and beautiful and amazing, when I first breezed through it at the start of the game, obviously it's very close to the beginning and so I didn't really know much. I wasn't really good at jumping or running or any of that. Couldn't triple jump to save my life. Um, but coming back to it maybe one or two kingdoms later when I felt I could actually control Mario and get the most out of all of his skills, it just felt a lot more rewarding to find hidden nooks and crannies, um, to find hidden coins, hidden items, hidden moons, and just to capture things a lot more smoothly. That just made it more enjoyable for me. Um, and I liked how every time I went back to a new kingdom I found something new. Um, and part of me was glad that I didn't sort of try and go too completionist or go too hard on my first playthrough because discovering those small things like whether it's new NPC quests or things like that that just felt so much better the second time around I think the way that I'm going to do it is I'm probably going to do what I'm doing and try and find try to find as much as I can as I'm going through it but then I will beat the game stop for a bit and then I will just jump jump back in whenever I fancy playing a Mario game just to to collect the rest and just sort of chip away same way as with breath of the wild how i haven't done all the shrines yet but i'm saving them for when i do get that urge to play breath of the wild rather than having to start a new game and mm. go through again that's what master mode is for yeah <laughs> master mode Damn. dlc buy it <laughs> <laughs> i've bought it i just I, I will never have time to play it <laughs> not with that attitude yeah get to work mister <laughs> <laughs> so so far what is your favorite area and why? Um, oh, this is going to be hard. Um, my favorite area is going to be a toss-up between New Donk City and the Luncheon Kingdom. Um, the Luncheon Kingdom because it's about cooking and food, and I love food. Even though I hate self-describing as a foodie, that's probably my reality. Um, I love food, and the chili peppers and chef hats were just adorable. I felt like the different mechanics you could use with your enemies, um, it gave the most variety in terms of different kinds of enemies at once in one particular kingdom. And so I really enjoyed that. Um, lots of jumping puzzles, which I also enjoyed. And just, I mean, the peppers and chef hats are so adorable. <laughs> um, it might have been a bit environmentally sparse. I think most people kind of felt that way about it in terms of like the environment not being as lush or as detailed as places like the Cascade Kingdom or the lake kingdom or even the forest kingdom um, but I just think the characters and the peppers had so much charm um, I enjoyed it I enjoyed the kooky boss well the kooky mini boss as well and so that was a lot of it for me a lot of its charm was from its presentation just like the kind of offbeat eccentricity of that kingdom New Donk City is my other favorite which I'm probably gonna talk about when we come to what we felt were the highlights of Super Mario Odyssey um, it has a particularly good platforming sequence, which you'll have to really experience to get what I'm saying here. But New Donk City just felt like a really, really solidly tuned level. Um, it sort of really, really integrated Mario with, I guess, a quote-unquote realistic environment full of quote-unquote real humans. And it worked. It was offbeat. Um, it was interesting. 
the mechanics made sense. It really felt like the hustle and bustle of a real city and Mario wearing some wacky outfit and running around people in business suits just made it more entertaining for me. Um, I think thematically it was one of the more coherent levels from start to finish. Um, everything sort of had its place. All the enemies um, made sense and they were innovative. Um, and I really enjoyed it, even though having it being called New Donk City with Donkey Kong suspiciously absent um, is a bit dark. Um, yes, see but... my Twitter thread about the gentrification <laughs> of New Donk City. Yeah. <laughs> Please read it, honestly. Like, as I was running through, I was like, where is Donkey Kong? Why is it called this? Like, all these questions, you know. Um, it had a very Gotham-esque feel, which I loved. So, yep, two thumbs up for me for the Luncheon Kingdom and for New Donk City. Um, what about you guys? For me, my favorite has got to be the Sand Kingdom, which is one of, okay. one of the first kingdoms you come to. It's also, I haven't done the Spoiler Kingdom you unlock after the credits, which is an amazing addition. You'll really enjoy it when you get to it, but I don't want to spoil what it is. Uh, yeah. But the Sand Kingdom, uh, discounting the Spoiler Kingdom, which I have not played, is the largest kingdom and has the most number of moons hidden in it. I spent over three hours there trying to find everything, whereas every other kingdom I spent about two hours trying to find everything total. Uh, so I just appreciated it for that, just for the size. It was, appropriately being the Sand Kingdom, it was the one that felt most like a sandbox to me, and I don't know if it was just fatigue from playing the game over and over every night for over a week or just a frank appraisal of the design of the levels as they go on but they felt like they became more linear and segmented as they went over time whereas the sand kingdom was a sandbox you could go anywhere you wanted at any time and an area furthest away from you isn't necessarily the most dangerous and the end game area of that area, which I, I appreciated. It felt like it had the most thought put into its design. So just for that reason alone, I like the Sand Kingdom the best. Cool. For me, I think it, it's going to end up being New Donk City, but I've I've only spent like an hour there so far. Um, I also really enjoyed the Sand Kingdom. Um, as I mentioned before, it's the one I've probably spent the most time in just because I was really reluctant to leave until I found all the moons I could. Um, it has a lot of cool puzzles and there are some really neat ways to traverse the environment uh, and I was just constantly discovering things no matter where I went the ones that follow are a bit smaller I agree um, and I got through them quicker but yeah I think the Sand Kingdom just for its its uh, vastness and the amount of things to do in it, it's, it's not just an empty level there's, there's heaps to find and do in there well, how I've been approaching every level is when I get to it, I do not leave until I've done everything that there is to do in the level at that time that I've reached it. Now, how I've appraised that decision is there are two characters who you can talk to who give you hints about the Power Moons, and that's Takatu and Uncle Amiibo. And once you've done everything in the level that you can do when you first reach it, they'll tell you, I don't have any more hints for you, go away. So what I did was I just kept going back and talking to them and talking to them and talking to them until I found everything that there was to find in the level, so that way I could move on to the next one. Now, I happily did this for hours on end without guilt, but Thimbleweed Park, which I've been talking about playing on the podcast for a 
couple episodes now. I think probably half our episodes I've mentioned I'm still playing Thimbleweed Park. I finally finished it last weekend. It's because I broke down and I started using the hint line. And I felt that ruined the whole game for me. So I'm just wondering why it is that the hint line in Thimbleweed Park ruined the game for me when I felt I had to use it. Whereas in Super Mario Odyssey, I'm immediately asking for help from all of the hint resources in the game. Uh, I reckon that's just the way they affect progression in different ways and the way you perceive them in terms of the genre. So point-and-click adventure games are built around the puzzles and figuring things out, and it's kind of like a badge of honor by beating it, right? Mm-hmm. So, but so by using the hint line in Thimbleweed Park, it has that ability to make you feel dumb and like you failed at the game. But in Mario, once you found enough moons to progress, finding the rest becomes about less about the prestige of solving a thing, and more about finding them because it's enjoyable. It's like your your enjoyment doesn't hinge on finding them. And I, th- I think it helps that Mario doesn't really spell it out for you. Like with, with Talk to, he gives you a cryptic clue, mm-hmm. and even with Uncle Amiibo, he just marks the X on the map. He doesn't tell you how to get it or, or where to get it exactly. Because um, like I, I've got crosses on my map. I have no idea yeah, how to get. Oftentimes to them. the X is not terribly useful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but I, I did enjoy using Uncle Amiibo. Uh, as an aside for getting Mario to wear a wedding dress, which is not something I thought I wanted, but it, who who knew it was? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Togoto is the best and the purest bird I've ever met. Um, he is my bird son, and I will love him forever. He's a parrot in a um, cowboy hat. What's to hate? Exactly. He's just... I mean, I just felt like Togoto and Uncle Amiibo, they were there for me when I needed them, and when I needed them was when I wanted to find absolutely every single bloody moon in the level um i didn't use them very much when i was actually sort of just playing through the game story for the first time i left it for later and i think um similar to what andy has just said that i liked how it didn't just tell you exactly how to get something and the whole you know x marks a spot on your mario mini map isn't really x marks a spot when it comes to super mario odyssey so I think it was rewarding for me because it was like, okay, here's a hint. And it just felt like a hint. It didn't feel like the answer to everything. And lots of the challenges that you do once you find the quote-unquote um, spot where the moon is. Um, you know, sometimes I almost tore my hair over some of the platforming. Um, hmm. But I liked how they integrated the hints in this game. Um, I felt like I did need them at some point to get all the moons in a level. And I just wouldn't have found them without Tokutu and Uncle Amiibo. So thank you, Bless Tokutu for enriching my experience. <laughs> um, now, highlights so far. Now, let's try not to be too spoilery. Yeah. Um, but what would your highlight be at this point? My highlight is the song Jump Up Superstar. Um, I don't really think it's a spoiler because everyone's heard it by now. It's in pretty much every single trailer um, of people singing and dancing and smiling while playing Super Mario Odyssey. Um, I will say my highlight is how the game uses it in particular levels, um, in a particular kingdom, and it uses it in a way that shows just a lot of attention to level design and building momentum, which I think is one of the overall philosophies underpinning Odyssey, is just building of momentum, and you wanting to explore and feeling like you have to explore and being compelled to explore, and I think Jump Up Superstar and its use in that particular kingdom um, really resonated with me because it underpinned all those philosophies and it really showed that in terms of level design. So it's a great use of music. It's a great piece of music. 
and my highlight was the one sequence where it get used where it gets used in that kingdom that was just sublime it just was like the climax of the game for me almost it was really enjoyable uh spoiler kingdom for me i can say no more mm. i can say no more yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, and for me i think it was the first time i got properly let loose in new donk city I think, yeah, it was just like super. I think it's visually impressive, mm-hmm. uh, and there's so much to find. Like I'm, I'm trying to chart my way through from one corner of the map to the other, and there's just heaps to do. But that that first point of entering it was was really cool. You went on a rampage okay. on the scooter in your boxer shorts, didn't you? Come no, on, you can admit it. I didn't. Honest. Okay, maybe a little. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, we've had some listener feedback on Super Mario Odyssey. Uh, so we'll read through some of the tweets we've had so or multiple tweets in most cases so first up we have uh, Trashylvania who was formerly Cheap Boss Attack who said that this is the most engrossed he's been with a Mario title since Mario 64 it's imaginative, vibrant and most importantly fun time for post game content uh, he also added that the occasional uses of required motion controls were a bummer when playing in handheld mode but that was his only complaint after 20 hours Yay! The composer of our awesome chiptune interludes, Craigity Craig, he said he wants to take a moment to praise the accessibility options as it's something that often gets glossed over or treated with derision. He says, My wife has a difficult time controlling 3D games, but because of the generous options afforded by the assist mode, she can. Not only that, but the multiplayer cappy mode is brilliant for this. Controlling the hat is cool enough, but there are some less touted features. As Cappy, you can jump for Mario if they're having difficulty timing certain parts. Even better, you can control the camera. So if you're having someone struggling to control in, in the first place, and the camera is another barrier, they can play the game as normal except with player 2 taking over camera duty. It's easy to scoff and say, get good, but because of these modes, someone who couldn't have enjoyed playing the game has. And they're implemented in such a way that if you think it's a stupid mode for babies, it doesn't affect your game in the slightest. Stupid mode for babies! i think that is really good though um in terms of this in terms of nintendo clearly thinking about people's ability to access the game fully and to enjoy it fully um i wouldn't have really i wouldn't have noticed um the need or the use um that you would have in terms of two-player actually affecting people's ability to play the game better uh, or to play it differently and to make up for certain shortcomings or certain play styles so it's really great that people are out there using what the game is offered to its full potential. And I think it's really good that Nintendo has clearly taken the time to think about people that need modes like this and to integrate them in a really nice way. Yeah, I didn't notice until just now, but uh, there's no super guide in Mario Odyssey. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Which that's kind of like, since the Wii U era, that's kind of been Nintendo's trademark because if you can't do something, here's the super guide. It'll show you how to do it. So it's interesting that it's not in this. I, I wonder... I wonder what informed that decision. I think maybe the way it doesn't have lives this time. Could be. Maybe that's it. Um, and lastly, we have Ernest Seven from Twitter, who incidentally bought a Switch because he's been listening to the podcast. So I think we we'll <laughs> do some commission from Nintendo. Thank you very much. One of us. Uh, one of us. One of us. Yes. He, he says, I love the story. I love the gameplay. I haven't played a console Mario game since Super Mario 64, and it feels like I'm jumping back into that world and continuing from there. I'm only in the Sun Kingdom, but I can't wait to play the rest. 
Okay, just lastly, uh, while we're talking about Mario, I thought it'd be a good chance to talk about our favourite Mario games of all time. We're going to exclude Odyssey because obviously you need time to let it gestate and form in your mind about where it ranks. Um, I want to start with Ginny. What's your favourite Super Mario game? Um, I have two. I've got Paper Mario The Thousand Year Door and I've got Super Mario Sunshine. The one that everybody hates. And for me, it's a tough one because uh, the original Super Mario Bros. was the first Nintendo game I ever owned and played and I put so much time into it. But it's definitely between Super Mario 3 and Super Mario World. Can't pick a winner. They're both just so inventive in different ways. Super Mario World, uh, Super Mario RPG and Thousand Year Door. Don't forget, you can send your questions and responses to our Twitter feed, at SwitchFocusPod, our Facebook account, or via our website and its handy contact form. Um, so folks, what are you playing in the next week? I'm going to look at picking up um, that new game about being blind but not really blind. Um, I've decided that I will try and satiate my curiosity and see how it actually plays, so we'll have more news on that next episode. Um, I'll be looking at picking up Moon Hunters as well. From what you said, Andy, it sounds really interesting. And I had my eye on that before the mania that was PAX. So that will be me. And I will be revisiting Super Mario Odyssey to collect all those pesky Palmans. The Mummy Demastered and Morphite. And I'm just going to carry on with Super Mario Odyssey, I think, because I'm still the way to go. Okay, thanks for listening to this episode of the Switch Focus Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us get noticed. You can also listen and subscribe on Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast services. Why not also check out our YouTube channel, where we regularly upload the first hour of many of the games we play. And you can follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and at switchfocuspodcast.com for updates, news, and other content. Don't forget you can follow us individually on Twitter. I'm at Toast. Andrew is Play Critically, and Ginny is at Ginny Woes. Here we go, off the rails But you know it's time to raise our sails It's freedom like you never knew Any bags or a pass Say the word, I'll be there in a flash You could say my hat is off to you Oh, we can zoom all the way to the moon Of this great wide wacky world Jump with me, grab coins with me, oh yeah